Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. So we are, as I mentioned, going through the Gospel of John, following along in a reading plan. And it looks like, yes, page 865 in the Pew Bible is where we are today. And if you're following along in the reading plan, um, you will have noticed that this week included a lot of action-packed stuff um, that we are between our Sundays, right? And two of those things that may sound familiar as stories, if you've been around church at all, was that uh, we have the miraculous feeding of bread to the hillside full of people and Jesus walking on water. So these are the things that we're not preaching on, but we have to keep up and we covered that in this last week, the scripture covered those two miraculous stories. So real quick, there was a crowd gathered, counted of about 5,000 men, which would mean that when you add the women and children, we'd be like at least double that, probably more. People gathered on a hillside to hear about, uh, to hear directly from Jesus. They had heard of him, and now they are seeking after him, and they become, um, they become hungry, right? So we have this sense of like this spiritual hunger. They've already sought after Jesus. There's some kind of hunger, but now we have a physical hunger that sets in. And with the um, available food, which was five loaves and two fish, Jesus blesses that food and shares it with everyone in the crowd. They eat to their heart's content with this miraculous provision of all that is needed, and there's 12 baskets of leftovers. And in that story, we get a sense. We don't even have what Jesus was teaching on on that hillside. It was the act in that moment that gives us that sense of abundance, of divine provision exercised in real, simple, human need of hunger being fully satisfied with this bread. And Jesus then withdraws from the crowd and the disciples head out in the boat and Jesus meets up with them by walking on the water. And they are freaked out understandably, as Jesus is approaching the boat. And the NIV version says, it is I, that Jesus says, it is I to them. But another, I think, good translation would be that Jesus said, I am, as he approached the the boat. I am, do not be afraid. And this is a clear reference. Both of these things together, we're hearing this, uh, but the I am statement is linked back to in um, Exodus 3, starting in 13. Moses is um, the one who is following the will of God to lead the people of God out of their, um, out of their enslavement. And uh, Moses says to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and, and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, like, what's his name? Then what do I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's his self-disclosure of God's selfhood. That's the phrase used, I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent, uh, sent me to you. And so when Jesus speaks the words, I am, into their fear in this miraculous moment, the passage we read last week actually ended with talk about Moses. And then we go straight to this provision of bread 
and this power over uh, water. So we see all of this linking us to this declaration and this realization of who Jesus is, right? So Jesus' divine provision of bread, it links here very directly in this passage to the manna in the desert, the daily bread that was given when the Israelites were in the desert land and they were hungry and God gave them manna every day, just as much as they needed for that day, double dose for the Sabbath, and they could collect it no more, no less, and everyone was satisfied. God's provision in the wilderness, and now the provision of bread here. And how about Jesus's power over the element of water? Doesn't that whisper of God's power over the Red Sea, parting for the Israelites to pass safely through? Who is this that has control even over the water? And then Jesus, of course, speaking, I am statement, recalling the divine mic drop and exodus of God's self-disclosure between God of God to Moses, bread and water. And now remembering, as we do, John's stated purpose in all that he's writing. He wants to tell us about the miracles, yes, but he wants us to see them as signs, signs that stir a deeper faith that we would bring, we would come to belief that leads to life, belief in Jesus that leads to this life that Jesus is offering. And so what we see in these encounters is that we are in the presence of God when we are in the presence of Jesus. That's what we're seeing. The great I am just walked up to the boat. And that's what we see. Now, this teaching today, the passage that we read and the whole discourse, which is a bit longer on this talk about the bread of life, all of that comes directly on the heels of those um, those two moments. So the same group of people who have just eaten the baskets full of bread on the hillside are now looking to find Jesus and they follow to Capernaum to find him. We learn at the end of our passage today, actually in verse 59, that this whole discourse takes place in the synagogue in Capernaum. And it's the people who have been on the hillside who are now trying to find Jesus. We still see that seeking after, a longing for more. So this, in six, uh, chapter 6, starting in 20, 25, a group from the bread miracle moment find him. And when they find him, they ask him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Isn't that a little comical? Like they're seeking after Jesus. They've experienced a miracle. They go travel across the sea. They've located him. And when they find him, they're like, what were your travel plans? Such like a Midwestern thing to do. How was the weather? I don't know. It seems almost comical and amusing to me. But I also get it, right? Like I don't even really know what I want to ask, but I want more. So if I just start talking, will you start talking then back? That's how I read it. I can't prove that, but that's sort of what it is. It's just, let's just start talking together. And he takes the experience that they've just recently shared and he, um, the provision of bread, and he expands from there. Let's go deeper from where we just left off. Remember, the goal is belief that will lead to life, the life that Jesus is offering. And so Jesus kind of goes from there with this theme of like your surface hunger was satisfied with that bread. Let's get to your deepest hunger. 
If we remember from week one, there was a slide that we had that showed in chapter one alone, the various names that were used for Jesus as John is introducing this, um, this son of God, son of man, all of these different words that we see are used. And at this point, we've added a few more to our list. We now have added to these names for Jesus that he is God's one and only son, He's the savior of the world. He has the prophet who has come into the world. What's up with all of these names? It's important to remember that in Christ, God was revealing an eternal truth of the nature of our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in a way that had never been revealed before. And so we see in here a bunch of Old Testament whispers of promise coming to fruition. And it's all true in this amazing moment where Father and Son, and yes, Holy Spirit, but we really, in this teaching, Jesus is really focusing, I am one with the Father. I am one. And this emphasis is in this complete unity that is expanding a view of God in a way that had not been revealed before. And the language can help us to back up and see something new from a plethora of words that, that together can speak something that any one of them alone could not capture. And an analogy I was thinking of is like, I love the Impressionist exhibit at the art museum. I especially love, think of, you know, the Impressionists are the ones who have like a bunch of little brush strokes and then it comes together to make a picture. You know, the, some of them, my favorite ones, play with light so beautifully. Like it actually looks like the light is shining in this paint. And if you get up really close, any stroke, any brilliant color exists as a truth in and of itself. But then you back up and it's like so much more for taking all of it in. And that's kind of what happens as we back up a revelation of the word of God, inbreaking of light, sacrifice of lamb, reverence of king, wisdom of rabbi, knowledge of prophet, etc., etc. It's an all. We have to look back and take all of these analogies and names and uh, uh, concepts and back up to get our brain to even start to comprehend the God-sized truth, expanding the canvas so we can start to see. And today, Jesus adds the bread of life, living bread from heaven. I'm not going to go through the whole passage today. I encourage you to read it. I, in, as I was getting ready for this week, I've just been reading it over and over every day, the whole discourse about this bread of life. But I want to hit on a couple of broad stroke themes, even if we're not going to go through the nuance of the conversation. So let's take a look really quickly. So he's saying, he's referring back to the daily provision of bread from Moses's time, right? Because they knew that story. The faithful Israelites knew how the God of the universe provided for them with their daily physical needs with this daily bread. That concept was ingrained in their cultural identity. And they, so they say, sir, always give us this bread. And that's when Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. That's the declaration. I am the bread, not only for your daily hunger, we just had that happen on the mountainside. 
not just for that, but I am the bread for eternal life. That is the view that Jesus is expressing here. So when we look at this passage, we see this, um, this, this imagery coming forth that's like saying, uh, a passage from Scott McKnight's book that I liked. Believing in Jesus means opening the mouth to receive him, ingest him, allow his life to actually permeate our bodies, right? Like food does. How else can we get into that, that utter ingesting, right? Right? Faith is union with Christ described in metaphors. And in 60, verse 655, when Jesus says this, I'm sorry, one sec. I should have put it right in my notes for faster. My flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. It's uh, real, it's better translated maybe true. Like this is the truest stuff. And so as food comes into the body and nourishes it, the same is true of, of Jesus, right? This language, you guys, this is shocking stuff. This is a little gross. It's a little graphic. It's a little flesh and blood. Like it's, it's the initial hearers. This stuff is really meant to sort of stop you up and be like, whoa, analogy just went really intense. It's meant to do that. But what we see here is this, this metaphor to get into a deeper connectedness, okay? So like beyond withness, beyond God with you. This is an in-ness that we see. Remember, for those of you who are here in the Ephesians study, uh, really common language was in Christ. We're participants in Christ. Uh, Jesus later in John 15 will say, abide in me. This is getting to the, that level of abiding and togetherness. And in John 17 verses 21 to 22, we have Jesus's prayer recorded that he says, uh, I pray that all of them may be one father, just as you are in me, I am in you. May they also be in us. We're getting to that level that this language, that little difference between with and in in the English language, we, we need a metaphor to expand the hugeness of that difference in what it means to participate in Christ. And that becomes Jesus's very prayer over us. Wherever you may have attended church before, whatever denomination you may have gone to, wherever you maybe grew up or went with a friend one time, maybe this is, this is your first time at church, I'm just informing you then. Like churches all do this thing with different nuance. I'm not gonna go there today. Whatever view you have of exactly the relationship between bread and Jesus flesh, like wherever you're at on that. We're not going to go there today. You guys, church denominations have broken over difference of nuance on this relationship, but that's not it for today. The point is, if you've been around a church at all, you know this imagery. If you've been to an art museum before, you are aware that there is imagery of bread and cup that is deeply important to the Christian faith. And that it makes sense. But in this moment, in Capernaum on that day when Jesus is saying these words, it's shocking if it's not already in your cultural imagination to think about participation in Christ being linked with the body and the blood and the bread and the cup and the sacrifice of the lamb that is yet to be recorded for them, hasn't happened yet. All of this lifting up 
onto a cross, like the, 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 just the, the dramatic nature of all of these truths haven't been fulfilled yet. When he's speaking this metaphor, it's a shocking and jolting claim. Jesus is launching from the miracle where he provided bread to satisfy physical hunger on the mountain, same folks, and he's saying that was nothing. Be shocked. Be shocked on what I'm actually doing, how much more I have come to offer. This is so much deeper than physical hunger or physical bread, so much more than the temporary satisfaction you experienced yesterday. I bet you're hungry again today. I'm going deeper than any of that. So to grab two of the verses from this passage, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And in verse 56, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. In, in inness. And he's talking about eternal promise here. Those who eat of this bread from heaven will never die. They can be assured they have life with God and it cannot be taken away. That is where Jesus is taking us into the depth of that today. But when you sit with a passage every single day for the course of a week, or maybe it's been 10 days now, that you, I've been ingesting this passage, I like to take time from that place where Jesus is teaching and allow us to sort of meditate on it a little bit. Um, you know, I almost said chew on it, and then I was like, well, that's cheesy, and then it came out anyway, so sorry. But like, like these, sit with it a little bit longer and see where it takes our mind. Because I have come to believe very much, I believe that the truth of Jesus' words is about the saving for eternity. It's about heaven. It's about our eternal destination, and that death is not the end. Steve's choice of songs this morning was really beautiful. But it's also about the eternity that is written on our hearts here and now. Jesus' saving promises are also about the eternity written on our hearts now. And that's where I want to go for a minute. I want to think about that deeper hunger. Push us to that place. Go from the words of Jesus this week and see what stirs up when we think about Ecclesiastes 3.11 is where it says that imagery of eternity being written on our hearts. Because I believe we are hardwired as humans for the hunger, for that redeemed eternity that is when all things will be made new. We're hardwired for that. That someday eternity is a recreation and renewal of all the things to their fullness and flourishing as things were intentionally designed. That once upon a time garden shalom and peace and everything will be recreated from before the fall and repurposed and redeemed in a garden city future where all things are made new, new heaven, new earth. That's the eternity. And we have a holy hunger hardwired in us for that design. That is eternity written on our hearts, a hard longing for that, our deepest hunger. And I think that the holy hunger is the feeling that comes up when we experience the dissonance between that that we're hardwired to crave and the reality that we're facing. 
I want to, you guys all know the sensation of physical hunger, that embarrassing moment in a quiet meeting room when your stomach grumbles and you feel it turning and you're like, oh, sorry. Uh, do you know that? Like, oh, I'm hungry, like a physical thing that you feel, right? I want us to re- think of a moment when you have felt a holy hunger. I'll just give you some examples that I was thinking of this week. Sometimes when I read the news, if I sit with the story for more than the headline, I literally can find myself either with hot tears stinging in my eyes or a tightness in my throat that's anxiety that's just, or a rage. Like sometimes, do you ever get that? Like that's the holy hunger. Any of those physical experiences, it's like this is not how it's supposed to be. War, these numbers of killings, like this violent, this isn't how how it's supposed to be and you feel that in your body that's a holy hunger another one is when if you've ever been hurt in a relationship that was meant to be nurturing and safe and supportive and something fractured in there and you literally feel an ache in your heart like your chest hurts and you feel like your world is topsy-turvy literally nothing is right it's all askew because there's a holy hunger it was supposed to be one way and it just got fractured that's the feeling that I'm talking about when there's a holy hunger. Eternity is written on our hearts, and so we crave peace, nurturing, flourishing, purity of delight in relationship with God and ourselves and each other. We crave that. We crave for the work of our hands to actually be fruitful and purposeful, to labor towards a good thing, to do good work, like a just be good at your job, whatever your job is. We want, to do, we want that to be good, whatever your work happens to be. We want the earth to be tended and flourishing and not abused, for creation to flourish. So we, we want that. We crave garden goodness. We crave garden goodness because eternity is written on our hearts. But this is what I was thinking about this week. I was thinking about hunger and how often our cravings can get tweaked, misdirected, just sometimes so subtly that we don't even realize that the aim has drifted just a bit. And I was thinking today about Jesus' offer saying, I have come to satisfy this deepest hunger. Okay, And here's where you guys have to forgive me. I already warned Julie, this is a little bit, here's the analogy, just stick with me a second. You're like, okay, we're in gardens, we're in bread, we've got it, and I'm switching us up to Pac-Man now. Just bear with me, because this week I was literally thinking about it while I was walking. I had that feeling like, how often, instead of that deep satisfaction, do I feel more like Miss Pac-Man, just going around trying to get more and more? Do you know that? You know, does, does anybody not know who Pac-Man is? Okay, so you know, like Miss Pac-Man, just like, just give it, I need, I need, I need, and I'm just going, and, it's, and there's not an end to it. Okay, I know it's a little wild, but here, I, I hope this is going to make sense from bread and garden to Pac-Man. Okay. Let me give my example, garden goodness, right? What is garden goodness? Our work to be done well. Whatever job it's been, you know, I've been a waitress, I've been in advertising, I've run our HR, I'm a pastor now, I've been a volunteer, I've been a stay-at-home mom and a homemaker, I've done different jobs. Whatever the job was, I, like, I, I long to do it well. And when I'm having garden goodness, I feel that sense of wanting my labor of my hands to be purposeful, to be well done. But a really easy misdirect for me is to become Miss Pac-Man and want 
all of you to think well of me and to get approval and to think I need more of that. Why well, I need them to think good of me. I need them to, to, to say that I helped today. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's like that thing that your drive that started good and holy gets tweaked a bit and then suddenly it's insatiable. I want approval. Or maybe it's things like I need the next promotion and the next one and the next one because I need more. I need a better car, a bigger house, and that more is a very elusive and never reachable goal. And so you become Pac-Man. And you don't even realize it. What started is a good, holy hunger to do good work. The, don't get me wrong. Doing good work and getting um, acknowledged for that, be it in a promotion or a raise or a word of praise or encouragement, that's a good thing. I'm saying, where's the desire in your heart coming from? Is it rooted to a holy hunger? Or have you gone off and suddenly you're just craving after the extra stuff, the shallower stuff? Let me give you another um, example. Uh, another one might be like um, your care for your body, right? It's really good to treat your body like the vessel that it is, the gift from God. You were designed in the image of God. You were fearfully and wonderfully made, Psalm 139. You are the holy temple of the Spirit of God now. All of these things are good. We should take care of our bodies. And that's a holy hunger, to be careful of the body entrusted to us. But where can we get off track easily? We can get off track with different, um, searching after this, the clothing that would make us look best, or the makeup that will fix everything, or um, our disordered eating in order to just, just lose weight at any cost and you know like they, those are the Pac-Mans. Does that make sense? It really was working in my brain. I like see it as like I just went off track and now I'm hungry for this thing that maybe started from a really good place but we can get off track. In relationships what might this look like? We are hardwired for community and to be in shalom with one another so there's all kinds of ways that this can go off track. We can do um little, with the conflict comes and shalom doesn't quite feel like the descriptor in a relationship. Maybe we go for the passive aggressive jab instead because it's just tastier. Gossip is tasty too, isn't it? Pac-Man, Pac-Man, Pac-Man. Like all of these things that we go after because something is off and we've just gone to the shallower fix and we've lost our deeper hunger. Uh, we know in this world that another one, speaking of our bodies, is in relational intimacy, right? The world says that's the deepest centered thing. I would say that that is one expression of a holy hunger that is for intimacy between people, not just marriage. And so that's why the Bible holds a high view of that kind of intimacy within the safety and uh, 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 covenant promise and um, nurturing of them. It's an expression of an intimacy, one form for within marriage, but all of us crave an intimacy to really know and be known, to be safe and cared for with somebody else. Whether we're single or married, like, hey, singles, you need that. Marrieds, your single friends need that intimacy. Just snuggled up on your couch on a Tuesday to watch a movie and to be checked in on. And hey, singles, don't think that your married friends are getting all of that from their spouse. We need each other, right? So all of these ways, you guys sort of see that difference? And now here's the thing, another one that came to mind. Beautiful things can be at the root of this. Like we want an experience. We want to just feel that experience. And then, you know, we maybe be like post it. And then we have like followers. And, and suddenly we're curating our life story to look a certain way. Listen, 
enjoying the world, the beauty of creation on a wonderful trip, enjoying art, music, friendships at a picnic on the beach, like it's all great. I'm not saying any of that stuff is bad, but when we actually realize our holy longing has switched and we're Miss Pac-Man, we're just going after the thing for the shallower fix. And what Jesus is saying is come back and meet me where deep calls out to deep. I want to satisfy the deepest hunger. And so sometimes, I don't even know where I am on those notes anymore. We're going to walk away from that. Sometimes I think what happens is we've gone off track. Some of the good stuff, the little pellets that Miss Pac-Man eats are perfectly good things. Sometimes they're bad. They're downright bad for you, you know, like just places you're not supposed to go down. So we need to work with, on those, but like the things themselves aren't bad. Here's what I want to say. If I were up here today as Miss Pac-Man or a fully connected deep on deep with Christ this morning, you may not know the difference by looking at me. The only way we can know is in our own checks with our heart and with Christ so that we can say, what's the deeper longing here? And am I tethered to your bread of life that seeks to satisfy that deepest thing? Because it's still lovely to post a post. I don't know. Any of those examples are fine in and of themselves, most of them, but it's when our holy longings have been skewed and we aren't finding the deepest satisfaction and that's what Jesus is offering. So it's what I want us to consider today. And the timing, I have to say, on this bread of life concept, this check of where our hearts are and if we are inviting Jesus into our deepest holy longings, our garden cravings, let's get back to those roots. It's a great time to check that if you're a person who um, is involved in the history of the church because we're coming up onto Lent. And just like the practice of the church often is on fasting from something, like the desire there is not just about a self-discipline check or something. It's not. It's to conjure up the feeling, the sensation of hunger that we talked about so that we can remember our deepest hunger is to be met by God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So whether it's that you give something up and you miss a meal, like waiting Wednesdays, you don't eat lunch on Wednesdays, you want to feel that so that you're having a bigger conversation with Jesus. You're saying, bread of life, meet me in this hungriest place in my life. Or maybe you're giving up something you really enjoy. And every time you think, I just really want that chocolate right now, you're allowing that to be a sen physical sensation that points you back to the deeper need that you have. And that's where Christ wants to meet us with a shocking metaphor Yes, but a beautiful one. One that every single week we commemorate by saying that we want to be a part of this yes to the ingesting, the inness, the such complete and other participation in Christ that we're actually changed to our core in a beautiful way. And in so doing, you guys, this allows for tastes of eternity to come into our lives now. For us, for others, it's a beautiful invitation. It's a shocking use of words that leads to a deep spiritual truth of what God is actually inviting us into. Amen? Jesus, I confess to you that these words can feel um, like a lot, even for somebody who's been taking the bread in the cup forever. And I just sometimes am shocked by your willingness to shock. 
and I thank you for it. I thank you for the discomfort that I feel and that I believe you meant for me to be jolted by that and by the bigness of what you're inviting us to. I pray that we would be brave enough to just sense in our own spirit, in our own self, along with you, Holy Spirit, would you guide us to know when we are um, just replacing holy, holy hunger for something shallower, something that does not satisfy, and let us meet you in the holy place for the, the thing that our, our whole bodies and our souls and our spirits and our minds and all of us truly, truly craves. Thank you that you long to meet us there, and I pray that your transforming work actually can come in your name and by your powerful promises. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.